Ellis East Elementary walkthrough, May 18th. Auxiliary Classroom 2. This classroom is substantially larger than the previous. Like Auxiliary Classroom 1, it has thin blue carpet, and it is about as long as the previous classroom, but twice as wide, making it, quite possibly, the largest classroom in the entire school. The walls are off-white, with a large section of the northern wall being substantially lighter, suggesting a chalkboard or bulletin board has been removed. There is a small crack of paint running down the eastern wall, spider webbing out at the ends. The wall underneath the cracked paint is undamaged, though. You can see the previous coat of paint, which is a pale cornflower blue. The southern wall has windows, much like the southern wall of Auxiliary Classroom 1. There is a wonderful view of the field by the gymnasium and the woods that stretch beyond the school. While the first classroom was full of boxes, this one is exceptionally empty. There is a cabinet in the back corner that appears to be built in, but otherwise there is nothing in the room. No tables, nothing on the walls. It is the most empty of any of the rooms I've viewed so far. I suppose I can check out the cabinet. Georgie, honey. Mom wanted me to stop by and check on you. Don't go in there. Georgie, is everything okay? Dad, what are you doing here? Now there's another power outage. You weren't answering your mother's text. She asked me to check on you. I was taking a nap. Seems like the power outage didn't affect you. Nope. Outages have never been the issue here. In fact, you might say we have too much electricity. How is that possible? I know the school is on the same grid as everyone else. I've seen the documentation. Big advantage to being the mayor, apart from all the gazebos. Leave gazebos out of this. Unless you want to build one on the grounds. I have some ideas. Dad, we've talked about this. No outdoor architecture plans until next spring. So, how are things at home? Do you want to call Mom? You both can be here if it helps. Though, if it gets bad enough to go to the basement, maybe we should go to your place. I thought you cleaned out the basement. Well, yeah. Now it's just kind of weird. Fair enough, honey. Did I ever tell you how my friends and I used to explore this place back in the day? There was this one time we found this... Uh, you know what? Never mind. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, June 8th, 11 p.m. Before Dad awoke me, I was dreaming. It starts out harmless enough, cozy even. I'm on a brick street, lined with old-fashioned gas streetlights, running parallel to a river. On the other side of the river are the lights of the city, but on my side are a row of large, old, colorful houses, painted ladies dancing up winding hills. There are Christmas lights in the trees and wreaths on the doors, candles in the window, a full winter scene. I'm not alone, but in that way dreams work. 
I don't know who I'm with, only that I feel safe with them. A light snow begins to fall. They stop to look at the river, and I start to walk down the street, from gaslight to gaslight, looking back, taking in the whole scene. But when I get to about the fifth streetlight, I look back and I realize my companion is much further from me than the short distance I thought I had traveled. Yet they had not moved. The distance is stretching out on its own. And then I see what I'm walking toward. It's a bench with a statue sitting on it. But I turn around again and the distance is doubled and I'm suddenly painfully aware that I do not know who I'm with. But also, when I turn back, the statue hasn't changed. But suddenly I get the feeling that it's not a statue, but a person, eerily still. Not one of those street performers, but a person trying to fool me. Though, for what intent, the ground starts to pitch and shake and suddenly I know who my companion is, though I can no longer see them and I am very afraid. The snowfall intensifies, the sky turns purple, lightning thunder follows on its heels. I awaken and I don't remember who they were. I don't think I'm supposed to know. This is the first dream where I've been outside the school since I've lived here. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, July 9th, 8 a.m. It's been a month since I moved in here. It seems much longer. Not in a bad way. Moving into a new space feels like stretching out your limbs, exhaling, growing into the space. At times, it feels like inertia. The process of learning to be in a new space takes precedence over everything else. Even as eventful as the month has been, I feel myself resting, taking in the newness of it all, basking in the fact the space is mine. As time goes on, the novelty of the space wears off, but I make a point of making use of every corner, not so much filling the space, but rather not allowing myself to be cramped into less than I have. I am one person. I cannot be everywhere at once, but I feel like I would be cheating myself if I didn't try to spend as much time in as many different parts of the school as possible. Obviously, there is work to be done. There's a secret room behind the bookshelf that is full of old records, which will hopefully hold the answers to the endless stream of questions I've had since moving in. There are boxes of textbooks, yearbooks, class photos, which will 
tell me the stories I know I'm missing. I feel myself procrastinating on that work, but I largely just want to be in this space. I feel whole, I feel healed. As I move forward, these tasks will orient me to the space to give me the meaning to fully inhabit it. Letter from Helena Re. Actually, before I record the letter, I want to return to the previous session with Lucy and Helena's records. Lucy had revealed in a letter to Helena the alleged, I say alleged because while I have certainly seen evidence firsthand, Lucy's claims strain the limit of belief. Anyway, the alleged consciousness of the building in which I now reside. The letter alluded to some crisis which had arisen, the details of which are still unclear, and ended with Lucy giving Helena and her family the option to leave. We have here a letter dated shortly after Lucy's messages to Helena. Let's see what happens. Letter from Helena Reeve to Miss Grace Thornwood, dated October 10th, 1897. Dear Grace, much has happened since I last wrote. Algernon Hobbs is dead. Anna Georgina Plume commentary. That certainly took a turn. Apologies. I will not interrupt myself again. About a month ago, there were rumblings in Ellis Field that some of the residents were unhappy with how the school was being run. Specifically, the Hobbs have a policy that all students are to be admitted. All are welcome. This has been a point of contention over the years, but Lucy has always managed to charm the detractors over a cup of tea in her office. Recently, however, severe storms have been on the horizon and Lucy's diplomacy was wearing thin. It did not help that Algernon had grown more reclusive and his connections with the spiritualist movement had become public knowledge, upsetting the religious leaders of Ellis Field. Adding to this tension was Lucy's decision to admit a young woman from a neighboring farm who the community members seemed to have taken issue with, viewing her as being unworthy to be admitted to the school. The truth is that Marguerite is brilliant, but she struggles amongst large groups of people and was not particularly suited for the noise and chaos of the farm setting. Since coming to the school, she has thrived, not out of a fundamental change in who she is, but having found an environment in which she has been allowed to flourish. Unfortunately, this has led to the belief that the young woman has been influenced by magic or witchcraft. This was made worse by the fact that Algernon Hobbs had taken a particular interest in the young woman's success at the school. In the weeks leading up to Algernon's death, tensions were escalating around the town. Lucy's attempts to smooth things over were rebuffed as the community members were convinced that her tea was part of the magic they feared. As matters began to look particularly foreboding, 
Lucy shared with me some information about the school's history that I am not at liberty to relay to you here. First, because it is not my story to tell, but also because I am afraid if this letter were intercepted, it might potentially harm Lucy. Suffice to say, after the full explanation, James, Elizabeth, and I were given the opportunity to leave town for our own safety. We refused with the concession that Elizabeth would stay with the Messingers until all this was resolved. The next evening, a group of men arrived at the gates of the school demanding to be allowed inside. Lucy refused, but they were able to remove the gate from its hinges and enter the schoolyard. Inside the school, Algernon and Lucy were arguing about how to proceed. Lucy still believed in the value of diplomacy, but Algernon was convinced that they, Lucy in particular, had some ability to defend against the intrusion. Preparing for the worst, James gave me an iron from the library fireplace while he hid a kitchen knife behind his back. Once the men had entered the school, having removed the door in the same fashion as the gate, we fanned out in front of them in the front vestibule. Lucy tried to reason with them, but they were insistent that they destroy Algernon Hobbs' office, which they believed to be in the basement of the school. Algernon did nothing to disabuse them of this notion, but did stand in front of them, trying to stop them from breaching the basement. In the height of the conflict, one of the men pushed Algernon down the basement stairs, and we could hear the snap of bones as he landed. He did not move. At this point, the mob turned on the three of us. As James and I prepared to fight, we heard a voice, stern and regal, coming from the front of the school. You will stop. Each word punctuated with considerable force. I looked up to see a woman flanked by a lion and a lioness walking towards the mob of men. The animals walked with an energy suggesting they could attack at any moment, and all three figures shone with a light that did not seem to be natural. The men fled the school, and in the confusion of their departure, I lost sight of the woman and her lions. Once everything had calmed down, James reattached the gate while Lucy and I tended to Algernon's body. He did not survive the fall. We buried him, according to his wishes, at the edge of the forest. In the days since this has happened, things have calmed with the village again. I am certain that the appearance of the woman with the lions has not been discussed in the village, as the men would not have been believed, and the three of us do not speak of it either. James and I will remain here, supporting Lucy as she grieves. I apologize for ending this letter so abruptly, but I am exhausted in light of recent events. Sincerely, Helena. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, July 9th, 4 p.m. We're here in the first auxiliary classroom to sort through the boxes of books and ephemera left in here. Do you see any cubby holes? Cubby holes? <laughs> no. Why? Just an idle curiosity. Haven't seen any in the school. This box looks to be third grade math. 
dated 1998. I have yearbooks. Let's sort the boxes this way. That side of the room can be textbooks and anything we find that is not a potential source of information about the school's history. This side of the room will be anything that has the potential to give us some information. Once we're done sorting, we'll bring all of the potentially usable documents to the archive room. It sounds like a really good plan. I've got second grade science here. Reading books, 1970s. Overhead transparencies. A set of solid shapes for math. Ooh, more yearbooks. Huh. Copies of worksheets. Got a pile of class photos. A box of board games. Ooh, a box of Crayolas. Educational video cassettes. Tempera paints. A portrait of a woman. Ooh, let's see. Is that Lucy? Helena? It says Elizabeth Reeve Messinger. Huh, I guess she married Carl. Ellis East Elementary walkthrough, May 18th. The cabinet is light wood, like an oak or ash. It has two sets of double doors. The shelf behind the bottom doors are empty. They are lined with contact paper with a small violet pattern, but there is nothing else in here. There is a first aid poster on the inside of the top left door dated 1988. It has a slight tear across the top right corner. The top set of shelves are also empty, except for a pile of multicolored construction paper faded with age. On the top page, which is yellow, there is a drawing of three parallel diagonal lines in blue magic marker. I am going to leave this room and this hallway and continue down the back portion of the second floor hallway past the teacher's lounge to the music room. Lavender Evening Fog is a fiction podcast. This episode was written by Victoria Dickman Burnett, direction and script supervision by Ben Baird, produced, mixed, and edited by Nick Federinko, with additional editing by Victoria Dickman Burnett. Executive producers are Ben Baird and Victoria Dickman Burnett. The voice of Anna Georgina Plume is Victoria Dickman Burnett. The voice of Billy is Nick Federinko. The voice of Mayor Duncan Plume is David Gurman. The Lavender Evening Fog logo is designed by Allison Dickman, and Ms. Bidey, our carousel opossum, was designed by Matt Lowe. This episode is brought to you by the discovery of a deeper layer. This episode pairs well with a maple rooibos, no, not the cat, with notes of blueberry. <laughs>